0: Well, you know, people have phobias about all kinds of things. Some of them are pretty common. Uh, Fear of heights, fear of the dark, fear of public speaking, fear of confined spaces, fear of needles, fear of being naked in public. It happens. Other phobias are more uncommon, but medically recognized nonetheless. Odontophobia, that is a fear of dental procedures. Uh, cholerophobia, that is a fear of clowns. Uh, bromidrophobia is a fear of bodily smells. And uh, allophobia, I'm not sure how common this is, but it's, allophobia is a fear of flutes. Um, we're all different, but everybody has their own phobias. But one of the most common fears that is shared by perhaps more people than any other is a which is the fear of snakes. And with good reason, right? Snakes Creepy. I mean, the flicking tongue, the slithering body, the unblinking eyes. Snakes give me the heebie-jeebies. I don't know about you. Herpetologists, however, would be quick to protest that our common fears are largely unfounded about snakes and that snakes in general have been given an unfair reputation. They make the point that snakes are not nearly as bad as they've been made out to be. In fact, they say it is just a few bad snakes that have, in fact, given the entire species... A bad name. For instance, did did you know that 85% of all snakes pose no threat whatsoever to human beings? Did you know that it is only 1% of snake species in the world that are responsible for 100% of human fatality? You see, with very few exceptions, snakes are not only harmless, but they are extremely good neighbors. They reduce insects and rodents, and they help to maintain ecological balance. Yes, there are a few bad snakes that you need to watch out for. I'm not denying that. I'm just saying that you can't lump them all in together. There are good snakes, and there are bad snakes. And discernment means being able to tell the difference between them. When you look in the Bible, you could make the case that the same thing is true in the church. There are good snakes, and there are bad snakes. And then to make it even more complicated, there are good snakes... That have gone bad. Dr. Haddon Robinson was a friend of Kim and mine, and I remember him saying something about this once that first got me to thinking about this biblical idea. What I heard him say was that the most dangerous snake in the church is a good snake that has gone bad. Now, I want to try to explain to you what I mean this morning, and to do that, I want to have you turn in your Bibles in the Old Testament to the book of Numbers chapter 21. So if you're new to the Bible or U-version, wherever you get to it, that's near the front of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, chapter 21. Now this story in Numbers 21 comes at the very end of Israel's 40 years of wilderness wanderings. So after 40 years, despite their grumblings and their rebellion and their failures, God's grace has carried them over these decades, and he preserved them from the plagues in Egypt, and then he rescued them from Pharaoh's armies, and he delivered them through the Red Sea, and he provided food and water for them in the desert. For all of these years, God's grace has been sufficient to cover them, providing for every need every day of their lives. And now finally, the time has come for them to enter into the land and take possession of that which God has promised to them, as an inheritance. So Numbers 21, if you have it in front of you, in verse 4 it says this, of the nation of Israel, they traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. So here's the setup to the story. Now understand that people have been waiting in the wilderness for 40 years to go into the promised land. But finally, when the time comes to cross over into the land, they have to take a three-day detour around Edom to get there. And the added detour, to say the least, it put everyone in a grumpy mood. And in their grumpiness, they did what they had done so many times before. They complained. Verse 5 says, they grew impatient And they spoke against God and against Moses, and they said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Now, of course, it's easy for us to look back on their situation and wonder to ourselves, why couldn't they hold it together? I mean, I get it, it's a hassle. It's like when you're heading off on vacation and you hit road construction going north on 17. It's like, come on, we just want to get there already. It's not that big of a deal, though. I want to say to them, look, you've already been out here 40 days more. I 40 years more. I get it. It's three days, but you can hold it together. Be cool. God's gotten you this far. You're almost there. Just eat your manna flakes for a few more days. You're this close. But you see, it wasn't just their general grumpiness, but there was something in particular about this complaint that was especially sinful. Now, their parents had also complained about the boredom with manna every single day, but on this day, they now describe the manna of God as miserable, or perhaps your Bible says contemptible or worthless. Now understand, manna was the manifest grace of God that literally fell down from heaven every morning, daily bread, literally, to meet their needs, and they are now calling it vile. Literally, they are cursing the grace of God that he is sending into their lives, and it is biblically an incredibly serious offense to call the obvious work of God an evil thing. The people sinned and God brought judgment. Verse 6 says, then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the Lord. Now, To the people's credit, they confessed their sins, they turned to God in their affliction, and God answered their cry, although he answered them not in the way they might have expected. Verse 8, the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake they lived. And then that right there, that's the end of the story. That's kind of a crazy story, isn't it? Now, if you've been around church for a while, maybe you've heard this one before. It's the story about the best snake that ever showed up in the Bible. Clearly, we must call this bronze serpent one really good snake. Let me tell you why. Number one, its origin was divine. Now, over the years, a lot of things have gotten started that were really good, but this was something that God personally gave instructions for. Now, this wasn't a magical snake, but through this snake, God worked miracles. And the symbolism of this snake was profound. God raised up for them a rescue so unlikely. Think about it. The snake on the pole was the symbol of their own suffering, something they would have preferred not to look at. And yet by believing in God and looking upon that which he had provided, the people could be saved, saved from sin, saved from judgment and certain death. In fact, you could make the case that there is no greater symbol for God's great salvation in all of the Bible than that good old snake. What do you think? Does that sound like an overstatement? To say that that snake in numbers is perhaps the greatest symbol for God's salvation. How many of you know what John 3.16 says? Pretty important verse, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. How many of you know what John 3:14 says? Here I'll show it to you right here on the screen. It says, "Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the son of man Jesus must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life." For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If John 3.16 is the most famous verse in all of the Bible. The setup is knowing the story about this good snake in the book of Numbers. That's what Jesus said. If you want to understand what Jesus was doing up on the cross and what the Father was doing through Jesus for the world, then you've got to go back and think about what God was doing through that old snake in the wilderness. Its origin was divine. God called for it personally. Its symbolism was profound. It still sets up John 3.16 to this very day, and the history of the snake was unquestioned. According to the Bible, that snake stayed with God's people, wait now, for the next 730 years. Now, we don't have any details, but we know that for the next 19 generations, Israel preserved that snake and the tradition that went along with it. I want you to think about how long 730 years is. I mean, we have some traditions here at Bethany Bible Church. We're, we're proud of the fact that we've been around here for a while. But any tradition we would have would be less than 66 years old because that's all the time we've been around. Can you imagine having a tradition carrying along in your faith community that went back 730 years? I mean, that means 500 years before our nation was born. That was 300 years before Galileo first looked through a telescope. That was 200 years before Columbus sailed the ocean blue. 730 years is a really, really long time. That bronze snake held a place of rich tradition with an enduring legacy among the people of God. I'm just making the point. It was a really good snake. And so 730 years went by, and Israel entered into the land, they conquered the land, they settled in the land. Over those seven centuries, kings came and kings went one generation after another generation, lived in the land that God had promised to give them. And then turning over to the book of 2 Kings chapter 18, the nation had come to the very worst of times. So if you're in your Bible there, just flip through a few more books to 2 Kings chapter 18, the worst of times. The nation was bankrupt at this point. I mean, they were financially bankrupt. They were morally bankrupt. Idolatry was rampant among the people. And to make it worse, the Assyrian armies were knocking on the door. And it was at just this time that a young man with unparalleled passion for God became king. His name was Hezekiah. And he was only 25 years old when he began to lead the nation. And here's what it says in 2 Kings chapter 18. It says, in the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abiha, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands the Lord had given through Moses. Now that last part there, that's something I find interesting. Hezekiah kept the commands that had come through Moses, even as he was smashing the tradition that had come through Moses. Did you know that? that sometimes keeping the commands and smashing the traditions, they go hand in hand. See, it turns out that for as good as that bronze snake started out to be over time, it also became the most dangerous snake that ever slithered in among God's people. It's a perfect example of a good snake gone bad. You see, over the years, a subtle shift took place, and this wonderful symbol that had been given to point to God and to be used by God, it began to block God out it actually was pulling people away. The people had become more attached to the snake than the work of God that the snake stood for. And even with its unbroken history and even with its deep symbolism, in the end, it was no better than the hilltop shrines devoted to the idols of the pagans. Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He removed the high places. He smashed the sacred stones, he cut down the Asherah poles, and Hezekiah broke into pieces the bronze snake that Moses had made. Sometimes things change over time, even really good things. We lose a grip on them and they begin to take a life of their own. I feel like the celebration of St. Patrick is like that. Perhaps, you know, there's a day set aside to celebrate his life on the calendar every year. Patrick is a man who is worth remembering, sacrificial, humble, godly, with a missionary spirit who evangelized Ireland and called the people to a transformed life in Jesus Christ. So profound was his spiritual impact that 1,600 years later, he is still remembered every year on his calendar. However, there's something ironic about the celebration that marks this saint's life. In Ireland, we'll pick on them, the land of St. Patrick, every year, hundreds of people are arrested as a pattern for drunkenness and carousing and vandalism and acts of rioting and smashing windows and destroying property and fighting in the streets. The celebration of St. Patrick's Day right there in Ireland Sadly, it's one of those things that changed over time until it became ironic. It started out good. It stood for something great. It has endured for a long, long time, but it went bad when the heart got lost. It can happen with a holiday. It can happen inside a church as well. Just like the snake, it always starts out with something that is good. That probably means it's something effective. It's something that God blesses. Something that holds for us profound meaning. Perhaps it is a special song that moves us in a powerful way. And every time we hear it, still, it stirs something inside of us. We may say, I got saved while that song was being sung. Sometimes just to hear it, to this day, we cry. It's always something good. It's a ministry that God works through. It's a campground where lives are changed. It's an organization that God's hand is upon. And because it is something good, we make sure to preserve it. And in preserving it, over time, it becomes entrenched as an institution. It becomes our tradition. It is our practice. It is the way that we do things. It becomes our 33rd annual whatever. In fact, over time, it becomes difficult for us to imagine it being any other way. How could it be summertime if we didn't send our kids to Camp Winnipesaukee? Can we really celebrate the birth of Jesus without singing Silent Night? Can you really get to heaven if you don't read our daily bread every morning? It becomes entrenched to us as an institution and for this reason, We protect it, and finally we protect it long enough until finally it becomes to us sacred. Our tradition becomes something we would fight for. Our program becomes something we would divide over. It is something almost that we would swear by, and though the shift may happen little by little and it may take a long, long time to get there, eventually, ever so subtly, we are tempted to worship it. Of course, we would never be so unsophisticated as to call it worship. Our religious vocabulary is far too nuanced for that. But in truth, we venerate it just the same. And in our worship, it becomes to us an idol. Something good, preserved until it was an institution, protected until it became sacred, worshiped until it became an idol. And yet one more example of a good snake gone bad. And even for good, Bible-believing, church-going folks, I mean, not us, mind you. I'm not talking about us today. I'm talking about people that are very similar to us out there. But sometimes, even for good, Bible-believing, church-going folks, something good in the house of the Lord actually becomes a substitute for God. Crying out for our attention, demanding our affection, expecting our loyalty, cultivating our devotion, things that belong to God and to God alone. What we discover through this story is that idolatry is far more a subtle danger than we may have ever imagined. When Hezekiah rooted the idolatry out of the land, that meant that he had to root it out of the hilltop shrines, but he also had to root it out of God's temple as well. The proof of idolatry is not in the place that it's found. It's not in the form that it takes, but in the position it occupies in front of God. Let me say that again. The proof of idolatry is not in the place that it's found. It's not in the form that it takes, but it's in the position that it occupies in front of God. Whenever we find ourselves more attached to any object or passion or pursuit more than to God, there we have found our preferred idol it turns out that idols don't have to be found in the sensual shrines of the pagans idolatry can be as respectable as sunday morning worship over time things can change but we still may find ourselves clinging to sacred traditions even when we have long since forgotten why You might be impressed to know that I once had a weekly radio preaching ministry, but the truth is it's not nearly as impressive as it sounds. When I began pastoring in Norman, Oklahoma, I became the preaching voice of their weekly radio broadcast that had been in operation for 60 years, utilizing the cutting-edge technology of the day. They had begun in the 40s broadcasting each Sunday throughout the entire city the good news of God's Word, and God used that ministry. And people will reach through it. And it was something of an institution. And it sounded kind of impressive, too. I began to wonder, though, how many people were actually listening. Because it did cost tens of thousands of dollars every year to run that program one time a week. And, and because now we could stream all of the message 24 hours a day at very little cost at all. I began to wonder if we didn't owe it to ourselves to find out exactly who was still listening out there. So we decided to run a little experiment. I recorded a little message that we tacked on to the end of our program and we ran it for the next two months. At the end of the broadcast, I would come on and I would say, hello friend, this is Pastor Mike Flashman. I want to thank you for listening today to the radio broadcast ministry of First Baptist Church Norman, Oklahoma. We pray that this has been a blessing to you today. In fact, We would love to hear from you and how this program has been an encouragement to your life. We want to continue coming to you each week by way of radio with the message of God's Word, but it's important that we know the positive effect this is having on your life. Would you drop me a line today? Pastor Mike Fleischman, First Baptist Church, 211 West Comanche Street, Norman, Oklahoma, 73069. That's 211 West Comanche Street, Norman, Oklahoma, 73069. Thank you, and may God richly bless your life today. Would you like to guess, after two months, how many cards and letters came flooding in? That's right, there were none. And the next year, when we quietly ended our 60-year radio broadcast, can you guess how many listeners complained? None. Well, my wife complained, but I told her she'd just have to start coming to church like everyone else did. So I guess the truth is I really didn't have a radio preaching ministry, but I was the guy who ended a radio preaching ministry. I think for some of our dear folks who had seen that ministry when it began, I think it was a little hard to see it go. But when we had the courage to look and to ask, we discovered that we were still clinging to something that was really good and had been around for a long, long time, but it had changed. And we didn't even realize it. Let me give you another example of something you're probably familiar with, but you probably have no idea how it started and how it has changed over time. I don't know, maybe you do. Sunday school. Do you know that long before public education, Sunday school started as an innovative outreach ministry to ensure that poor children received an education? Now, this was back before there were child labor laws, and poor children would usually work six days a week. So Sunday school was begun as a ministry to children outside the church on the only day of the week they didn't have to work, and it used the Bible as a textbook to provide the poor the opportunity they might have to learn how to read. So they would be given a good set of Sunday clothes and then attend classes on reading and writing, and Sunday became their day of opportunity to move beyond poverty, all while hearing and experiencing the love of God. For instance, our 33rd president, Harry Truman, He received the first six years of his education through a Presbyterian Sunday school in Independence, Missouri. Today, 240 years later, Sunday schools are still growing strong in churches in almost every town, village, and city in America. But its main purpose of reaching out to the most desperately poor children in society is long lost and mostly forgotten. The institution remains... But with a completely different purpose, almost exclusively today, it provides religious training for insiders to the church, insiders of all ages. Now don't get me wrong, I'm thankful for Sunday school programs, ours included. I'm just trying to make the point that sometimes things change over time and we may have no awareness that a change has even taken place. And if we're not careful in the preserving of our institutions, it is possible that we might wake up one day and discover that what once began as a good and God-honoring tool has in fact become a perfectly respectable idol. There's nothing wrong with Sunday school. There's nothing wrong with radio ministry. Or live streaming or podcasts, for that matter. There's nothing wrong with hymns that are printed in books with all of the notes and lots of verses. There's nothing wrong with new songs on the screen that repeat themselves a lot of times in a row. Stained glass windows can declare theology. And setting up screens in a gymnasium can convey something powerful about the nature of holiness. Communion once a month might be too often. Communion once a week might not be often enough. What I'm saying is that all of these things, and countless more, they're just traditions, they're methods, they're ways. Ways that can be meaningful and effective in declaring the glory of God in the midst of his people. But if and when any of these things become more important to us than the God that they point to, then they have become sacred. And our devotion to them can be a slippery slope towards religious idolatry. I'm not sure what you heard me today, but if you only take away one thing today, here's what I hope you'll remember from the story of the good snake that went bad. Just because something began for the best of reasons, and I mean if God personally spoke out of the heavens to get this thing started, and just because something was used in the greatest of ways. I mean in rescuing people and pointing them towards the Savior. And just because something has endured for the longest of times, all of that doesn't necessarily mean anything. And that's important to remember. Because when it does come time to break apart a snake in God's house, you can bet there will always be formed a Save the Serpent committee. Those who will be quick to remind us of the rich heritage of the snake. Those who are ready to remind us of the powerful purpose behind the snake. Those ready to recite for us the long history of the snake and how God has worked through it in days gone by. And maybe the serpent can be saved for a new generation. But I just need you to know that there also may be times of great spiritual revival, just like in the days of Hezekiah. When the time may be right to just break up the snake. And start over again. Bethany Bible Church, I would like you to know right now that I love you. And I want you to know I am absolutely not hinting at some long-standing tradition or program or something that I want to get rid of. There's not an email coming out later this week that is announcing some changes. I just would like to make that clear right now. (laughs) In fact, especially for many of you who have been around here for a long, long time, one of the things I brag about on you is your willingness time and time again over these years and decades to change. I mean, especially for those that personally know the rich heritage of this place and have witnessed the glories in days gone by, and yet decade after decade have been flexible to change. I want you to know that I'm proud of you for that. And it makes me thankful to be your pastor. I think today is just a reminder and it's good for all of us that just because something began for the best of reasons, just because it was used in the greatest of ways, just because it has endured for the longest of times, doesn't mean that it still cannot become an idol. Now, I understand that we're sophisticated modern people today. We don't bow down to graven images, but the truth is you and I, we are as prone to idol worship as any people who have ever lived, because an idol is absolutely anything that demands center stage for our hearts and our minds. It is anything that offers itself to be the substitute for sold-out devotion that belongs to God and to God alone. And so, yes, we can worship our idols in a crack house. We can worship our idols in a casino. We can do it at a football stadium. We can do it in a shopping mall. Maybe our idol is our work. Maybe our idol is parked out in the driveway. Or maybe, just maybe, it might even be inside a wonderfully good church. You see, it doesn't have to be a bad snake to be an idol. It also could be a good snake that just went bad. It says, Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, he smashed the sacred stones, he cut down the Asherah poles. And he broke into pieces the bronze snake that Moses had made. Heavenly Father, we know that it is true. As much as any people who have ever lived, we are prone to worship idols, not only of our own making, but of our own preferences. And there are probably as many idol varieties in this room as there are people who are gathered together. We're just confessing that we are prone to this. And that we know from the very beginning your call to us is to love and to worship and to serve and to cling to you and to you only for you are the one true God. All the gods of the people are idols. They are nothing. They are the gods who have come lately. They are the gods of our own imagination. And we are prone to chase after them anyway. God, I I pray that you would keep us sensitive in daily, quickly passing ways, things that on this day or things tomorrow that are prone to capture our imagination, to grab our affections, to demand our devotion, anything to distract us, to take our eyes off of you. For you are the one true God from the beginning who has spoken to existence absolutely nothing, absolutely everything out of absolutely nothing and you are on the throne, and you are true, and you are all-powerful, and you will hold us fast to the end. Even as times change, would you help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, the God who never changes. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, who makes you manifest and visible and perfectly understood. Amen.